The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. The theme, of course, for today's discussion is um, this new book, um, Wisdom Wide and Deep. But I'm not going to read from the book because I figure all of you know how to read, right? So hopefully you'll um, get interested in something that I say about the book and find that you actually want to have it at home and read it. It is a substantial book. There's no doubt about it, more than 500 pages. But I hope that doesn't frighten you, but instead excites you about the, um, the, uh, the depth that's possible in this practice. It seems like a thick book for many of us who usually thin, read thinner books. In fact, most um, when I told my publisher how long it was looking, they, they thought, hmm, that's a long book. <laughs> but... Um, but as we started to, to develop it, we realized it really um, is actually a rather condensed book for the subject matter. It's based on uh, the teachings of the, that are contained in the Visuddhimagga, which is a traditional um, ancient meditation manual, which is frequently used to guide the meditation practice in um, Asian monasteries. And it's... Um, Influenced as well by the teachings of the Buddhist psychology, the branch of Buddhist psychology called the Abhidhamma. And so it's, um, uh, it's wide and it's deep. That's why we call it Wisdom Wide and Deep. And I want to mostly share, though, a little bit about what this practice is about and my experience of the practice, how I got interested in it, because the, the, the details you can find in the book. The, um, as Maureen said in the introduction, I've been meditating since 1980, so I wasn't new to meditation practice when I first became interested in, in developing deeper concentration. And in, in 2003, I um, blocked out some time for a one-year retreat. And I thought, oh, I'll just start that one-year retreat by deepening concentration and developing what are called the jhanas, which are absorption states of deep concentration. There are four particular states that are called the four jhanas, and then one can develop um, the formless or the immaterial states changing the, by using different objects and really refine this aspect of calmness, of settledness, of unification of the mind through the cultivation of this particular system of jhana practice or absorption meditation. And I thought I'd do this for, you know, the first maybe month or so of the retreat, kind of warm up my concentration and, you know, then shift to the practices that I had previously been doing. But as I started to explore the concentrated mind, I realized there was a tremendous um, wealth of of, of um, practices to explore that each gave me a different perspective on the mind. And so I ended up using concentration and jhana as the basis for the insight and exploration basically since that retreat in 2003. So now it was really that that one year ended up being a 10-month retreat and that was really the focus of that retreat. And because it was such an intensive retreat, um, some, of, um, some of my teachers had thought that 
I might like to write about it and explore it. And one of the teachers said, I really should write a book about it because it hasn't been written. At that time, there was very little that was available on jhana practice in Western literature. And so I wrote Focused and Fearless, which uses the breath as the primary object, gives the instructions for developing concentration and jhana in the formal retreat practice, but primarily emphasizes the cultivation of concentration in daily life and just how do we get, how do we work with the mind that is so often distracted and disabling for us? And so this is a book about developing concentration. It ends with the insight, so it's more than concentration, but it's emphasized primarily on the cultivation of concentration in the context of an insight practice. I think it's very important to always think of and understand the development of concentration in the context of insight practice. Even when we've given a period of time to cultivate this particular factor of concentration or samadhi, even then, even when we're primarily holding a fixed object to cultivate concentration, we still are doing it for the purpose of liberating insight. That's the purpose for the path. There's no point in concentrating the mind just for concentration's sake. They provide pleasant abidings. They make us happy. We can rest in a blissful state. It's all kind of nice. But there's no real purpose to that unless we use the strength of the concentrated mind for insight. So I was during, uh, from 2003 to about 2006, I was in various ways exploring concentration as a basis for insight using the, the jhanas as, the, as that foundation. But I didn't have a traditional, gui- I didn't have traditional guidance until 2006 when I attended a retreat with um, the Venerable Pao Aksayadao, who's a Burmese master and emphasizes both con- uses constant, strong concentration to follow a very systematic and traditional um, development of concentration, the discerning of, of, reali- of mind and matter and the, the, the body and mind, the five aggregates, it's called, and then using um, that as the, um, as the fa- foundation for insight practice. So when I met um, Pawak Sayadaw, it was a first, the first retreat I did with him was quite short, and so we only explored the concentration practices. But I learned so many bits that were tips and uh, tools and techniques that made what had been still a rather effortful and difficult practice for me made it very smooth and very quick and very easy. And I was learning so much from him that I signed up for the next retreat. <laughs> and that one was for four months. And so we had more time on that one to go beyond the concentration practices and to go through the whole path of practice. And I want to share a little bit about what this path of practice is. Because during that retreat, um, Venerable Pauksayada asked me multiple times to write a book. And at various interviews, he would say, you could write about this. You could write about that. Oh, you should write about this. You should write. Now, I had only recently seen Focused and Fearless published, so I wasn't all that keen on starting another big project. I was really keen on just meditating and maybe even resting. 
But by the end of the retreat, as the retreat came to its close, um, the pressure was on. And he, he must have asked me at least a dozen times, probably many more than that, to write this book. So at the end of the retreat, I was so filled with gratitude that I really thought, okay, I'll do it. And so from 2000, and, um, and that was a retreat in 2008, until it was published a few months ago. This was um, a, a, a big project for me. And as I was writing this book, I was very engaged in it. It was fascinating, and it was deepening my understanding of the Dhamma. So it, it required that I read a lot more and that I read a kind of text that I hadn't previously studied. I had to read a lot more commentaries to the suttas rather than just the suttas and to review many of the texts like the Visuddhimagga that I had previously read but had not really, really studied so much. And so it was a wonderful practice to write it and to explore it and to be able to to integrate the study with the practice itself. And so during those years, all the retreats that I did were based upon this method, reviewing them, exploring them, comparing the teachings of the various commentaries, the Visuddhimagga and the instructions that he had given me, and um, checking to be sure that they, were, that, um, that they made sense to me and that they weren't just something that I could do in one retreat one time ago, but that they were really available. And then as a Western layperson, it was very important to me to, to consider how can this practice be integrated into a, a way that makes sense? How does it make sense for a Western layperson? And what I found is that these teachings are completely applicable. Many of the practices require retreat practice, or at least seclusion or quiet and some time to cultivate a momentum of practice. Not all of these practices can you just plunk down and say, okay, I'm just going to do this and just do it. Some, they require certain conditions. But many of us are able to do retreat practice to some um, rather significant degree, even in the context of a lay life. I look around this room, and I know many of you have done a substantial amount of retreat practice. And it was important to me that these teachings not be, um, that not be um, available only to monastics or only to people who go off to Asia, but that the practical way of actually doing these, these traditional practices are available to us so that we can do parts of them in our daily life and we can do other parts when we create, a, cre- create the conditions in our life to go into retreat and to focus on them. These practices, every single practice in this book, I have done and is doable for us. This, pra- this path basically is divided, I see it and divided into several sections. The first section, and, and I've made the book in those sections, the first section deals with the cultivation of the conditions that allow the mind to settle deeply. So we work with skill in relationship to the object. How do we hold our meditation object? What kind of skillful attitudes do we bring to it? How do we develop a skillful um, um, meditation practice and a skillful life 
as the foundation for our meditation practice. What's wise attention? What's unwise attention? And the cultivation of a host of, of, of wholesome factors that make it possible for the mind to settle in deep, deep, calm states to then explore with very um, careful precision the nature of mind and body. So the first section takes the breath as the primary object and explores the mind and the concentrated mind and how to cultivate the concentrated mind. The second um, section looks at a range of concentration objects. Some of you may be familiar with the statement that there are 40 concentration objects taught in the Theravada tradition. That's one way of counting them. There is many different objects that we can use other than the breath. Many of you have done Anapanasati Samadhi, concentration due to mindfulness with breathing. Many of you have probably also done the Brahma-Vihara practices of loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, which can also all bring the mind up to, the, um, up to states of jhana. We can also use the death reflections as a concentration object, and we can use the contemplation of corpses up to jhana. We can use the parts of the body up to the first jhana, and we can use um, the um, colors and the elements up to the fourth jhana. So there, there are additional reflections and a, a, a whole range of objects, and each one of these um, objects I give the, the specific instructions for. So the first two sections deal with the cultivation of deep calm. And each chapter includes a kind of a, a section that explains and uh, is like the prose section. It, it, it's easy to read, I think at least, um, certainly compared to the Visuddhimagga. <laughs> it's easy to read. It talks about, uh, I, I give some personal um, stories of, of my experience with these practices. I put them in context so you understand the purpose of the practice and how it fits in, the, in, the, in this path of liberation. So the, there's, a sec, there's the primary bulk of the, each chapter is very easily readable um, for anybody regardless of whether you've done meditation practice before. Then there's, there are boxes that include daily life reflections and exercises. And those, I think, are easy to do in daily life practice. But then there's another section in each chapter which are called meditation instructions. Some of these you'll probably skip over until you go into retreat. Or you'll scan through them and see, oh, they'll take out some of these components and let them support daily life practice. But some of the more refined instructions in them you might hold off on in, in, um, until you go into retreat. I mention that because sometimes when you get to a section that stops being relevant to daily life, you think you put down the book. I don't want you to put down the book. I want you to skip over those and pick up the next chapter, which also includes the same pattern where there's daily life practices, there's retreat practices, and then there are, there's the explanation and the context for the Dhamma teaching in it. And then the next chapter is the same. So you use your wisdom and your um, sens- sensitivity as you're reading to see when you get to that section on, um, retreat, on instructions, you'll see that they're very technical. They even have step one, step two, step three, step four, step five in many of them. So it's pretty obvious that they're technical instructions. 
In this way, I tried to present the book so that it included the theory and the understanding of these practices, as well as the how-to component. Now, the third section is the section that I found most interesting um, in my practice with Venerable Pauk Sayadaw because I had never explored the nature of mind and body with such refined detail as his instructions encourage. These teachings come directly from the um, Abhidhamma teachings, where the, the, the material components are broken down into their most minute and refined elements. And then the mental functions are broken down into very, very um, quick and rapid mental events. And we look at the body and the mind in terms of their characteristics, their functions, how the body and mind manifest, how perception happens, how things come together, what are the causes and the conditions for the various effects that we experience in our lives. And so we use the concentrated mind to be able to look very carefully at the nature of the body and the nature of mind. Internally, that means for our own bodies and minds, and externally, how do other beings experience it? And, and what about the materiality of the table or of the floor or of the water? So we explore and perceive, it's called, or discern, the, 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 the refined uh, components of mind and body, see their causes and their effects, and how they function together. So it's an extraordinarily precise exploration of mind and matter. Now, this was very exciting when I first started to explore this, because for the first time I realized why it's worth spending some time concentrating the mind, because these are not so easy to see unless the mind is concentrated. And they are the natural things that the concentrated mind sees. As soon as the concentrated mind turns and lets go of the object, its meditation object that it was concentrated with, and starts to look at body with the curiosity to explore what it is, and looks at the mind with the curiosity to see how it functions. So in the training in this four-month retreat, uh, we go through various exercises to illuminate each aspect, the, the, the various mind moments that compose a cognitive process, the, the, the ways that dependent origination, dependent arising functions, the ways that the body forms and, and regenerates itself. And there are exercises to see this for ourselves. And what we do once we've seen all of this isn't just get fascinated by it. I found it fascinating, but that isn't the purpose to it. The purpose is we are discovering the objects that we will then contemplate for our vipassana practice. So we always talk about um, understanding the impermanent nature of things, right? Well, what are things? Things are aspects of mind and body. And so instead of just taking body as a big concept to see it growing old 
it getting sick and dying. We look carefully at the arising and perishing of various material elements within the body. So it's, it's contemplating the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of those material elements that we had previously discerned. And we might say, oh, sadness arises and passes, or anger changes. So we often in, in our daily life, we see the impermanence of our moods and our emotions. But with the concentrated mind, having broken down all the mental processes, both wholesome states and unwholesome states, into their, um, their momentary events that come together to create the cognition of a feeling or of a perception or, or of an experience, we take each component of that and contemplate them as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. So, the, so basically, by doing this careful discernment, of what are called ultimate realities of mind and matter. We've, we've given ourselves refined objects for vipassana practice. And we do the same thing with cause and effect, looking at the various causes and effects and the, the conditional relationship of things in the cycle of dependent arising, the 12 links of dependent arising. And then we contemplate those interactions as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. So it gives us a slightly different orientation to vipassana than I think what most of us have been accustomed to practicing. But it's all within the same spirit of it for the same purpose, but just a lot more refined because the concentrated mind allows us to do these discernment processes that we can then use as objects for vipassana. I found that by doing the concentration practices first, and then taking the time to carefully discern matter and mind. Not only did I learn so much more about body and mind, and particular about how wholesome states function and how unwholesome states function, which I think is one of the most important things because that's what we base our decisions upon, right? A wisdom is developed by knowing what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. And very often, we're, we're, we're pulled into activity very quickly based on habits. And when we've looked really carefully at these subtle components of things, we start to see them very rapidly, very quickly, and make wiser decisions in our actions, in our speech, and in our lives. So even though this sounds very abstract sometimes, something that somebody would only be doing in long retreats, it actually isn't. I'm finding that so many of these practices are very, very directly applicable to the way that we perceive things in daily life and the way that we act and the choices that we make and how we can unravel the suffering um, that we might experience in daily life. So once we have these, um, ob- these refined objects, it's, I kind of imagine it like we have a, a table with all our objects there, and then we start to contemplate them all. Then, the, as we see the impermanent nature of things, and we see the, co- the rapid arising and perishing of events, the mind is seeing it so it, with such uh, subtle nuances that it goes through a very rapid, it rapidly goes through what are called the 16 stages of insight knowledge, 
which propel the mind through this sequence of insights and knowledges that go from seeing the arising and passing of things to recognizing that there's really nothing there that's going to ever make us really happy to a kind of disenchantment with things and a dispassion, an equanimity, and a liberation where the mind at some point lets go of its preoccupation and obsession with mind and matter and realizes nibbana and the deep peace of that liberated of that liberated experience so i think of this practice as going from distraction to nibbana in four easy sections <laughs> Now, I say easy, but that's um, maybe, maybe it's not true that it's easy. Many of these practices are, are not so easy to do, and um, they really do require a, a lot of conditions that have to be put into place. But I have tremendous faith and confidence that when we're dedicated to the Dhamma, that we are putting those conditions in place. If they're, when they come together, then, these, then, then the development goes further. When they haven't yet come together, then it's even more important to be practicing, right? To keep putting those conditions together. And the, um, the results of a practice like this, I found this to, to deepen my practice more than anything that I had previously explored. That's why I was willing to, to really write a book about it. And as I was working on this, I kept having the aspiration, um, may this, um, this book be a contributing cause for the realization of Nibbana for myself and all readers. Because this pra- practice is so profound. I mean, it really does go from distraction to release. And I think that's what we all seek, is some degree of freedom. Sometimes it's freedom from one particular pattern or obsession in our day. And that's like the metaphor, in a way, for a kind of freedom that we sense might be possible, an ultimate liberation. So it's my deep hope that this book supports liberation. (laughs) And in that process brings clarity to the nature of mind and body, strengthens the samadhi, and clarifies many of the stages of insight that are often um, uh, a little muddled or confused um, when uh, we don't necessarily know what is happening in our practice. Uh, Many vipassana practices take the mind through those same stages. Pawak Sayadaw didn't invent this process. This is right from the Buddhist tradition. But he's one of the few people who are teaching it in this systematic way. So I went back to do another four-month retreat this summer. Um, I returned at the beginning of November. So I'm kind of fresh off the, the retreat cycle. And in that retreat, we went through the whole thing systematically again refining the understanding of each section, exploring it in more detail. I had the opportunity to um, 
to ask him questions about anything that wasn't so clear to me. And the good thing was, was as he was reading the book, and he focused primarily on the Vipassana sections, if he saw anything or even a use of a subtle word that could be interpreted one way or another, he would bring it up in the interviews, and then I would do more exercises around that one. (laughs) So I got a chance to really integrate the um, intellectual understanding with the practice and to keep checking the compatibility of the practice and the understanding of the path so that it, it really um, leads to um, uh, the, 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 the peace, the equanimity, um, and the wisdom that, um, that this path offers. So I'd like to um, take a few minutes for questions. Maybe you have some questions about anything that I've said this view of practice, this, this scope of concentration, discerning, and um, I- insight practice. Or perhaps you've done some concentration practice or some insight practice and want to just ask a question about the development of your own path. Please. You mentioned, I think, several times uh, practices, concentration practices in daily, in daily life. Um, and I'm curious, more than curious, uh, I wonder if you could give some examples of what, that, what they would be. And um, uh, to relate my own experience as to why I'm asking the question, so I've done um, some retreats where I felt I developed for me, a certain amount of concentration that felt very deep. Um, And I found, I think, when I left the retreat, that concentration dissipated very quickly. And I didn't really know how to... I wanted wanted it to stay, but it didn't. Yeah. um, It's true that concentration practice is a conditioned state, which means we need certain conditions for it. And so retreats are designed to enhance concentration and provide optimal conditions. Otherwise, why would we go on retreats? I mean, we actually carefully design retreat centers and retreat teachings and the schedule all to support your concentration. So the fact that your concentration deepened in retreat says how successful retreat practice is. Now, one of the things that we can do to support that is is consider what are the distractions in daily life that how is it that we're living that disturbs that concentration. We're not going to live in retreat, but we can consider what kinds of things keep um, stirring up the agitation and preventing concentration so that we live in a way that although we're not living in a concentrated state because we're answering emails, we're talking to people, we're working, we're interacting with family, friends, we're driving, we don't do all of those in jhana, I assure you. (laughs) Um, We can live in a way that allows us to, as soon as we settle back down in meditation and warm up a little bit, and bring the attention to our meditation object, that we can settle deeply and quickly. So we don't live in jhana, but it really is possible to create the conditions in our lives and cultivate what's called mastery 
of these states so that when we turn our attention to a chosen meditation object that has the capacity to take us into jhana or that has the capacity to just stabilize the attention, that 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 process happens very rapidly so we can experience deep concentration even in our daily practice. Now, the kinds of practices that I suggest, they're really throughout this whole book. Actually, both books have so many kinds of suggestions. But a lot of them look at how we work with distraction or how we hold our meditation object, how we relate to things. Because it's in that relationship to our meditation object and our relationship to anything other than our meditation object that that distraction is born. So we develop a skillful application of our effort that's not too forced and not too loose, but not only in the meditation practice. We also look at our application of effort as we're drinking tea and as we're doing a project. So so much of the qualities that we develop in our meditation, they are applicable to our lives. I mean, you don't, you're not only mindful when you're meditating, right? You bring that into your daily life. It's the same kind of idea. You're not only not distracted when you're meditating, but you can bring non-distraction and those aspects to the way that you engage with, um, with people and conversations and projects and activities. You can um, eliminate some of the things that are unnecessary and are really burdensome, and you can bring wisdom to the things that you want to do in your life and to do them in a way that support calmness and composure, and equanimity, and collectedness. Um, we can consider a lot of things that, um, that um, just keep us from giving the effort. Uh, concentration does require effort. We have to make a decision. We have to have a resolve to focus our mind on one, on one object and then stay there. So the way that we relate to commitment and resolve in our daily activities is very important. When we make a commitment, do we keep it? Our intention is really important. Cultivating intention supports concentration practice. And so there are ways that it's, there's specific ways that we bring intention into the concentration practice that also are applicable to daily life. So I think you'll find, you'll find it, um, there's, I mean, I'm not giving a lot of the specifics, but you'll find a lot of reflections in these boxes and little mini practices to see how you can how these things are applicable. And I think that's important. One of the most common questions that I get when I talk about this practice is, oh, that sounds fine if you're going to do a one-year retreat, but what about me? I only sit for 40 minutes a day, and then I'm busy all the time. You know, and does it have anything to do with a daily life practice? And I, I have to admit, there the, the deep states of jhana. I know nobody who only who who can do them without having first learned them in retreat. I honestly don't. There might be some rare people out there who have a natural gift for concentration who are able to do it. There's nothing about the practice that requires retreat practice. But I don't know of anybody. I, everybody that I know. Um, needs, has needed the support of instruction and, um, and the support of, of the container of a retreat to learn the process and then can bring that understanding back into their daily life to um, maintain it. But it's not easy to maintain either. Many people um, don't put forth the effort in their daily practice because to, to, to do those states, and that's fine. I don't think we always have to put forth that kind of 
effort. But it's, a, it's an amazing thing to know that we can. That when we bring up the effort and we want to do something, that we actually can. And then other times we can sit down for our daily practice and just let the mind rest in a present moment awareness and be fine with that. And to develop equanimity, to be skillful with whatever, the, whichever way we choose to apply our attention. Thank you. Mary Lee. working um, since I went on the Johnny retreat um, I've been much much more committed to my practice much and many things have happened that are very interesting my life has gotten way pared down from what it was before um, for example I don't have TV at all I haven't had TV in years but I was even unable to watch a Netflix movie for like two months <laughs> <laughs> which is great news you know although I'm kind of back to it now a little bit but I have, the question that I have basically is, I find the body to be an enormous obstacle. Like when I'm um, trying to sit for a... I'm, I'm sitting about uh, two hours a day now, once in the morning, once in the afternoon. And I find, especially in the afternoon, that um, I have so many little restlessnesses and needs to move around, and I have to keep changing position. And sometimes I'm just like about to get into deep concentration when my body just yells at me and I have to move. And then when I have to move, the whole thing dissipates. So I'm not sure how to, how to get the body to sit still for that amount, for a long amount of time. Is there easily. pain or is it restlessness? It's usually a combination of the two. Like, you know, I get, uh, I get twinges in my back or my knees or something like that. And sometimes in the afternoon it's more often restlessness. Okay. That I have to, sometimes I can look at it and watch it. But watching the restlessness, I never get concentrated. I'm just watching the restlessness the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you've actually brought up a really good point because it, um, it, it's an invitation for me to say something about the relationship of, of, of mindfulness of the hindrances and then um, the, the letting go of the hindrances. One of the things that I found most um, um, helpful and interesting when I started to develop the jhana and the concentration practices strongly was that I had previously been working a lot with the, 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 the hindrances. When a hindrance would arise, I'd be mindful of it, and then it would go away. But they would keep arising. You know, you may also have a few favorite hindrances that you've seen before, and many, many times before, and every time you see it, it goes away, but then it comes up again. And... I found that by deepening the concentration, then when the hindrances, uh, the hindrances don't arise when we're in jhana, but they do arise before jhana. But as the mind gets concentrated, we get a deeper view of those hindrances. It's as though we can, we can um, uh, uh, cut through them at a deeper level. And then, when, then it's easier when they're weakened by the concentration that we can sweep them aside and let the attention settle. So one way of working with the is to just understand that there are times when we are mindful of the hindrance and we actually take the hindrance as the object. And that this is important because I don't think it's wise to just set all the hindrances aside without having looked at them, without having a wise relationship to them. But once we really know what it is, oh, there's pain and there's aversion to the pain. How many times do we have to see that? Basically, we just need to make a determination of whether, for the pain, 
it's skillful to move to release it to prevent further in, to, to prevent future injury, or whether we just recognize that those sensations are unpleasant, and then we can set it aside and focus back on the breath. So it's bringing a wise relationship to the experience. But first we have to know what that experience is. So you recognize the, the hindrance has arisen. And then you can, you can look at it with mindfulness. You can investigate it to understand it. And so that you explore it mindfully, this develops a wise relationship to those hindrances. But after you've seen it many, many times then it's fine to just sweep it aside and bring a stronger resolve to stay with your meditation object. If, if it's physical pain and it's strong, it's probably better, if, you, if it's not a familiar pain, to shift, to let go of the concentration focus and to actually shift to a mindfulness practice exploring it. Because you, need to, you don't want to hurt yourself. But if it's the same old, oh yeah, my shoulder gets sore after about 40 minutes and I still have 20 minutes that I want to sit, but I know that it's not going to hurt me, then you recognize it and then you settle back in. You know, you might relax around it. You might bring in um, whatever tools you've learned and discovered to work wisely with the pain or with the hindrance. And then as it dissipates, you come back to your meditation object. At some point, as the concentration gets stronger and stronger, the hindrances become weaker and weaker. And they, they, they just brush aside. And then there'll be a period of time where no hindrance arises. As we get close to jhana, the hindrances just, they just don't arise. There's no, there's no conditions for them to come up. And the mind starts to get purer and purer and clearer and clearer and brighter and brighter and more and more steady and stable on the chosen meditation object until it's possible for the mind to absorb within the meditation object. At that point, when the absorption occurs with the meditation object, the hindrances cannot arise in jhana. They can arise up until then, but they cannot arise then. However, they are not uprooted. I say cutting at a deeper level, but it's more like we, their, their power is taken away, but the, their ten, the, the, late, the tendencies for those hindrances are still there until they're uprooted with insight. So although they can't um, arise, the jhanas are called temporary liberations of mind because you can experience the purity of a mind that is free from all hindrances, but for a temporary period. When you emerge from the jhana, the mind is still vulnerable to the hindrances, but it is strengthened by the concentration, and there's the potential to then see it so much more clearly that the next time you encounter that hindrance with a concentrated mind, you might have a greater chance to, see, to cut through it more deeply or to even uproot it. So... So we work with the hindrances. They're not just obstructions to concentration. They're the stuff of the practice. So um, gentleness is important. Being willing to explore the hindrances when they're compelling is important. Being willing to set them aside when you know they're not compelling, it's just an old habit. And you have to decide that for yourself. Oh, no, I've seen this before. And just set it aside. 
And so sometimes we have to take different approaches to the, different, to the hindrances. Um, and equanimity is really important in this practice to allow the mind to be equanimous and um, uh, equanimous with whatever is occurring in the practice so that we meet it and we respond skillfully with it. Um, it's, it's, um, it's not so often talked about the, what's called the inclination of mind, but how we incline our minds is often what we will develop. So if we incline our minds towards concentration, towards settledness, towards calmness, towards composure, we're more likely to develop that. So just having that intention and that inclination can help us in a way be more calm when the hindrances arise. And so that's still part of the practice. We don't think about the practice as being where we want it to be. We're not concentrated until we get into jhana. No, each step along the way as we're working with the hindrances, we can work with them with gentleness, with calmness, with letting go, with wisdom that all supports this development. In my most recent retreat, ending a couple weeks ago, um, I finally, for almost the first time, became able to um, block out papancha and focus on the breath for a moderately extended period each day. Uh, so I'm, uh, <laughs> this is after a long time of sitting, um, you know, some years. Um, so, I, so I'm still at a very much a beginning level in terms of being able to concentrate and block out papancha. And I think my next task is to uh, deepen and lengthen the, my ability to concentrate. Yeah. If I want to read up, <laughs> uh, read a book that would help, uh, which of your two books might well, be better I would for su- me? I would suggest Focused and Fearless first. And this I would suggest for everyone because this one focuses um, a lot more on the, um, the, the preparations for concentration and the breath as the object. This one reviews a little bit of the preparations for concentration and the breath as the object, but primarily takes it beyond that. So into, into many of the other stages. So I see them as a sequel, although they're not exactly a sequel. Um, so I would say Focused and Fearless first, but you might read Focused and Fearless and you might read the first two sections of this book because sometimes some at, uh, developing different concentration practices also helps support the development of concentration. Um, I found... I've worked with a few students who, you know, have worked a lot with the breath, but they actually get more concentrated using some of the other objects, maybe the 32 parts of the body or maybe loving kindness as a concentration object. And so I've had some people get first into jhana with the other objects and then come back to refine the breath as an object to take it into jhana. So people work differently with them, although we start with the breath as the object because we're all breathing. Um, it's it, it might it both the, the first section of wisdom wide and deep or all of focused and fearless would be what I'd what I'd recommend. However, I just want to mention something because you you mentioned um, 
blocking out papancha. For those of you who aren't familiar with the term papancha, it, it refers to the um, proliferating tendencies of mind. Daydreams. Fantasies. <laughs> Daydreams. Daydreams, yes, Fantasies. yes. It just, the mind wanders out. Yeah. So, um, but you say blocking out. Now, I only want to mention this because sometimes we really do block out something. We set a field, we set a boundary, and we say, no, that's out there, and my meditation object is in here, and my focus, my attention is defined in this space, and it's not going out there. And we have a kind of clarity of boundary around where our attention will go. It's part of, what's, part of the, the understanding of clear comprehension of, the, of what's called the clear comprehension of the domain of meditation, or with the Pali term is gochara, which basically means the pasture, the field where cows graze. And we define a field, and we let our mind stay within that field and not go wandering out. So, um, so there is an energy that can be done with that's, that's saying, no, that, that stays out. But there's, um, to deepen and refine the concentration, it's not only a blocking out. There needs to be a more nuanced um, and variety of ways that we let the attention rest with or settle on the meditation object. And can be, it can be a practice of gentleness and of release. If we're only blocking out can sometimes sound like it's pushing away, which um, can over time get um, um, tire, tiring. And whereas when we release into the meditation object and we con- consolidate our interest and unify our mind with the meditation object, then um, we get more variety of ways of working skillfully with it. So sometimes we'll block it out. We'll say no. But be sure that as you're developing the concentration that the quality of the effort is appropriate to the moment at hand. I understand. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Now I'd like to uh, see if there's any other questions. Otherwise, I'd like to go ahead and take a break and I'll be out there for a few minutes and I'll be available to sign books if you would like. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Last question and then we'll, we'll break. So on some occasions when the, uh, the conditions are right and uh, this is typically on a retreat, and I'm practicing uh, Anapanasati. Um, sometimes um, I'll be I'll be able to see phenomena arising and passing away. Stress comes and it goes, and it happens in rapid succession, kind of a kaleidoscope of mm. of uh, subtle mental noting. Um, is would I be advised to just keep doing that? I mean, it's a profound and beautiful thing. Or can I get value from um, studying um, further into, into this approach? I, I think there's always too? value in looking more deeply and extant, ex- expanding our understanding of things. Um, when, when the mind settles... And then you start to see phenomena arising and passing. What is the effect of seeing it? 
well, it feels very good. It's blissful. It's um, uh, it's then, releasing. It's okay. uh, it's phenomenal. Okay, great. Um, it's very liberating. Yeah. Um, the um, the in, the experiences of both concentration and insight tend to bring tremendous um, um, lightness to the mind because we're not clinging and attached to, like with Vipassana, we're not clinging and attached to the objects because we're seeing them change. So it loosens up a lot of the patterns of contraction and clinging. When we're doing concentration practice, the mind gets light because we're not brought into any of the hindrances. So we're in a purely very um, a pure and um, a calm abiding. But the um, development of this practice goes so far beyond the happiness and the calmness and the pleasure and the ease and the joy. It really leads to a profound liberation that uproots greed, hate, and delusion from its roots never to arise again until the time that we have completed that, I wouldn't stop exploring, practicing, reading, studying, meditating, investigating, calming, looking at whatever it is. Sometimes we're going to take some time to just calm, calm, calm. Other times we're going to be so curious we want to understand how does perception function? What happens when I see the color green? How, am I know, how do I know green? And what is the relationship to green? Not just am I greedy for green, but you know, is it you know what is how does how does it work? And what are the subtle, subtle, subtle components that that in any way keep perpetuating a craving for existence, a craving for a contact, a craving for sensory pleasures, a craving, a craving for anything. So this um, the depth that we can explore to is what's one of the things the, the the Buddha said the depths of the concentrated mind are unfathomable, and the um, and the 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 depth of insight must lead to an ultimate liberation, and so we have lots of insights along the way, and some moments are struggles. Not everything is pleasant. You already know that, though, right? Okay, but we also will have periods that are quite blissful. And we can use them whenever we go get to a blissful stage and things get really good. I encourage students to double their efforts because now there's the energy to do it. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your attention. I'm really glad you stayed this morning. And uh, I'll hang around the books if you want me to sign anything. <laughs>